15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts reported. Feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts where we talk astronomy, space science and all sorts of other weird and wonderful stuff and uh, answer audience questions from time to time as well as you would have heard last week. In today's program uh, we've got some really interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, scientists may have found a solution that explains uh, where some of Earth's water comes from. Fred and I have talked about this before, that uh, it didn't add up. We've got too much water, so where could it have come from? Well, it looks like uh, our son may be responsible. That's my wife and I's son. He's 32 years old. No, the, the one out, you know, there, eight minutes away as the crow flies. Uh, so how, how could that happen? We'll try and figure that out. Uh, and there's been some new data that reveals that most of the uh, dwarf galaxies in our part of the universe are relatively new, and uh, some of them are known as satellite galaxies because they're orbiting our galaxy, but some, some of them just wave as they go past. It's really fascinating. So we'll look into that. And a couple of audience questions, one about uh, the radiation of gas giants. And um, this is a really good question. It's a black hole question, surprisingly. Uh, but uh, they're asking, how can a star become a black hole if it loses mass? Wouldn't, wouldn't it, you know, lose all its energy and therefore how could it become a black hole which has got so much energy? Good question. We will tackle all of that today. Uh, I am your host, Andrew Dunkley. Joining me as always is astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How I'm are you all right. I'm sick of being wet. It's been raining here. For... <laughs> you are, yeah. We're a bit tired weeks. of it down here in Sydney as well. Yeah. Good grief. But, uh, yes, at least living on the side of a hill like we do, we're not flooded, uh, unlike many people that mm. I know uh, between here and you, yep. in fact. Uh, there's uh, a lot of flooding. Well, we've got flooding there. to our south, flooding to our west, flooding to our north. Uh, so far, so good for us. But our river did rise last weekend to a precarious height. We're lucky enough to have a massive dam upstream of us, which holds uh, three to five times the volume of Sydney Harbour. And it's at uh, 141% of capacity at the moment. And people go, oh, how is that possible? Well, it's got about a 50% flood mitigation level. So when it's at 100%, you can fill it up half as much again. It's a remarkable dam. Uh, so it's, it must be Burundong, yeah, Burundong it? Dam. It's it's holding yeah. back uh, a hell of a lot of water at the moment. So uh, mm. if we get any more rain, uh, things might change around here, but uh, we're just keeping our fingers crossed. I feel sorry for the farmers because they were about to harvest and the rains come at the worst possible time, and that follows a mouse plague and a drought. I mean, seriously, yeah. they just can't take a trick. Uh, I wouldn't be a farmer uh, for quids. In fact, there's no money in it at the moment, so uh, <laughs> very, very difficult right. times. Yeah, tough yeah it, gig. Is. it is a tough gig. All right, Fred, to our first story, and uh, scientists might have found uh, a, a possible solution as to how the Earth has as much water as it has. And up until now, we've thought, okay, you know, when the Earth was being formed, it was just a dirty old dried up pile of rock. And then a few asteroids and comets hit it that were made of ice and, you know, they left their water here and yay. But it didn't add up, never added up. It didn't add up, that's right. And there's, there's also uh, 
other things that you and I have spoken about, actually sometimes in great detail, that don't add up, uh, about the isotope ratio yes. of the water, whether, um, you know, the, the extent, it's this mixture between what you might call light water, which is H, normal H2O, and heavy water, where the H is replaced by heavy hydrogen, which is deuterium. Uh, and the ratio of light to heavy water is a kind of signature of where that water has come from. And so the idea that all the water in the Earth's oceans had come from comets uh, took a bit of a knock when the comets whose water content has been uh, has been analysed turned out to have the wrong isotope ratio. One or two of them, one or two comets do have the right uh, isotope ratio. In other words, one's one that matches the water in the Earth's oceans, um, and but some of them don't. Some of them are quite different, and in fact, most are quite different. And that's you know, the, the, this isotope ratio is something that um, is. Uh, so it doesn't change very much. I think it changes a bit, but not much. So if if you've if you've got the wrong kind of water making the oceans, then you clearly got something wrong. It's not that that's not where the water came from. And I think that I seem to remember that led you and I into long discourses about whether you could drink heavy water without becoming radioactive yeah. and all kinds of things like that. <laughs> I think we, so we won't do we that even today. went as far as <laughs> talking about um, you know what what if you came across a planet that was primarily made of heavy water um could you live there and the answer was basically no we we couldn't do it yeah that's right so um i think if i remember rightly from those discussions you could probably get away with a glass or two of heavy water but if you tried to live on it you'd you'd basically fall yeah. to bits in a in a medical sense rather than mm. physical so uh all that notwithstanding that's just you know it's just to illustrate that there are problems with our understanding of where the Earth's oceans came from. So uh, another theory that was put forward uh, to counteract the problem with the wrong kind of water coming from comets um, is that the the water content uh, of the Earth was always there, bound up in the rocks of yeah. the Earth. Uh, that um, you know that that when the protoplanetary disk was being formed around the sun, in which the planets, in which the planets um, uh, basically grew uh, by accretion, uh, those those grains of dust and things of that sort had water bound in them, which then became part of the rocks of the Earth. And in some way, that water disassociated itself from the kind of chemical or molecular binding uh, and, and ended up in the oceans. But that's, that's another theory that I, I think has problems. Um, what, it doesn't hold and, water? Uh, if I wish I'd, I wish I could admit to having set that one up for you, Andrew. But sadly, I'm just not that clever. I don't think it was very clever. Let me think I, of another I can hear one. The groan. Wait a minute. Here's here's one. Here's one. Um, I think that other theory might have gone down the drain. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, that, it's the best I can do. Dear idea. All right. Yeah, so, um, uh, but, you know, you've still, the problem is you've still got um, a deficit, exactly as you said, you've still got a deficit of water. Um, we don't, we don't know where most of the water in the Earth's oceans came from. There seems to be too much of it here. Mm. Um, and the same could be said, of course, of, of the planet Mars, because Mars originally, we, we, we know had um, 
huge reserves of water, um, much of which is still there as ice. So the same the same question would arise: Where does this stuff yeah. come from? So um, some new work, which has come from analysis of grains of dust from uh, the Japanese Hayabusa mission, which you might remember there have been two Hayabusa missions, Hayabusa and Hayabusa 2, both of which returned samples of asteroid material back to Earth. Um, The second one uh, returned samples of an asteroid called Ryugu, and those, I think, are still being analysed. But the first one, which uh, I think it returned... In 2010, this was the original Hayabusa, um, uh, actually visited an asteroid called Itokawa uh, and took samples from that and then had the devil of a job getting back to Earth. So everything went wrong. Uh, and it, I think it had to do a flyby of Venus. Or yeah. It was astonishing Didn't the way it takes the, the Jap- like an extra several took, years or something. Y- yes, yeah, that's right. It did. Um, uh, the JAXA, J- Japanese uh, Aerospace Exploration Agency, uh, they deserve enormous oh. credit for rescuing that sample because. It, it, I can't remember what happened. I think the iron rocket failed or something like that. So it wound up in an orbit that was not where it was meant to, to go to, to intersect the orbit of the Earth. But by waiting a while, they found they could get a slingshot from Venus and there was enough power in the, you know, in the thrusters to just to try and change its attitude and things. And eventually it got back to Earth. It is Amazing. an astonishing story. Yeah. So, um, but we're not talking about that uh, extraordinary uh, interplanetary peregrination. We're talking about the results that came from it. And some of those samples from asteroid Itokawa uh, wound up uh, at um, the University of Queensland uh, here in Australia, where they've been analysed by a group led, I think, by planetary scientist Professor Trevor Ireland, uh, who's, who's basically... His skills are all in the dust particles that make up planets and asteroids and things of that sort. Um, And what they've discovered is that the surface of dust grains from the asteroid Itokawa, uh, they are rich in water. Um, Basically, it's probably ice, I think, but it's it's water. Uh, And um, it's the surface that's rich. Um, and that's a kind of hint that what you're seeing is the effect of dust grains that are being fed by water. Uh, and the bottom line that these scientists are, or the conclusion that these scientists are drawing, for, for good reasons, is that it actually is water, wait for it, Andrew, from the sun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't sound all that sensible. No. But, of course, the sun spits out uh, protons, which are hydrogen nuclei um, and electrons. And uh, that's the kind of the raw material, that, you know, from the, the solar wind is the raw material of of, of hydrogen. Mm. Uh, and once the, that solar wind deposits itself on sur- cold surfaces, like the surface of an asteroid, um, then you get uh, a, a, a basically hydrogen and deuterium appearing on the surface of those dust grains, um, and, and it's there's a it's a fairly complex chemistry, um, which amounts to the impacting hydrogen essentially tears apart 
the silicon and oxygen. So that's the silicate, uh, SiO2, which is what makes rock, is is a silicon atom and an oxygen couple of oxygen atoms and you basically if you prang it with a hydrogen atom uh, or a hydrogen nucleus going at high speed from the sun it breaks the bond between the silicon and oxygen Um, and you you then get a reaction taking place which makes uh, both what's called a hydroxyl radical that's oh oxygen and hydrogen one atom of each bound together and the more common water molecule, H2O, with two hydrogen atoms bound to one oxygen right. atom. And so what, what it's saying is that this, this curious um, mixture of the solar wind and a bit of surface chemistry means that you've got uh, a, a potentially rich reservoir of water on the surface of dust grains of objects in space. And that doesn't just mean asteroids in today's solar system. It means the moon uh, in, uh, you know, over, over the history of the solar system and the earth in the, in the early history of the solar system. So they're suggesting that um, basically there is a, an un, uh, untapped, there you go, there's another Unaccounted one. Unaccounted for. Source, yeah, all right, unaccounted for. No, and, and, no, I was going to put it the other way. An untapped um, idea or, or theory yeah. uh, in the origin of water that it may well have come from the solar wind. Ah, um, so this would have been as the planet was forming with the, the big... I, I guess mm. so, although, um, you know, reading the, the scientific literature on this, um, it sounds as though this process is going on today um, because... Um, Trevor Island, who I just mentioned, uh, there's some nice quotes from him uh, that the, yes, that, yeah, I think this is a nice quote. The ability to trace water in the crust of a speck of dust is is really neat, he describes it as. Uh, I beg your pardon, Trevor Island wasn't involved with this study. He's commenting oh, okay. on it. I do apologise. <laughs> uh, let me just get this straight then because I've been, um, I've, I've actually, uh, downtrodden the real authors of this uh, this work. This is terrible. Uh, um, one of the authors is actually Steve Reddy, who's at Curtin University. I had it in my mind that it was Curtin University. Mm. Uh, and and um, then saw Trevor Ireland's comment, but he's he's actually not involved with this uh, with this study, but he's a fan of it. I'll, let me put it that way. So uh, Professor um, Steve Reddy is at Curtin. That is, he is one of the authors of this work. If he's listening, I do apologise for mangling this, this account of his studies. Uh, but it's the comment that um, comes from uh, Trevor Island, which is basically to the effect that it's really neat that you can you can actually uh, you know the top fifty nanometers of a of the surface of a dust grain, and fifty nanometers is um, something like probably. Um, well, a tenth of the wavelength of light. It that's, puts it perhaps the best way. It's a very small amount. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny distance. Uh, but you can actually look at that top 50 nanometers of these dust grains and establish that there's water. Um, and he says, this is again uh, Trevor Island, he says the potential of the solar wind to generate water had important implications for 
establishing a base on the moon. If you can establish, he says, if you can establish that there is actually water being generated mm. in the lunar soil by proton bombardment by solar wind, then that gives a potential resource in the future for water supply. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I was and, going to ask you if they think this is something that continues to happen, and it sounds like it does. It does. And, and right. when you consider yeah. the size of the Earth, and it's been basically created by lots and lots and lots and lots of grains of dust, that's yeah. a lot of water coming together. It, it, it is. That's right. Um, um, yeah, the, you know, they're 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 essentially. Uh, um, it, it, I, I guess just scratching the surface. There's no pun there, I don't think. But scratching the surface of this this idea that uh, you know the the, the Solar wind, these hydrogen nuclei bombarding the Earth all the time, might well have contributed a significant fraction of the Earth's water. I don't think they're ruling out that maybe some of it came from asteroids and comets. Some of it might have been within the rocks of the Earth all the yeah. time. But this has just opened up a new, uh, you know, a new mechanism for for uh, providing the Earth's this water. This could account for the differential in in what exactly. we believe should be the amount of water we have versus what it. Yeah, yeah, the the shortfall basically between what 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 should be there. Yeah, yeah, I like the theory. I I do very I, much like the theory. It's um it's very clever thinking and not something that would come. You know, you got to wonder how someone came up with the the idea. I suppose the evidence was in that uh, sample they got. And it's in the sample. Ah, right. okay. So, Here we yeah. go. Here we go. Really yeah, thinking. new idea. Bing. Um, yeah. So yeah, there might be more to this too. So uh, I guess they'll, um, they'll they'll be investigating further, and we might be able to um, confirm one way or the other whether or yep. not it does in fact uh, hold the answer to the uh, the mystery of how much water is on Earth. It also prompts me to wonder about the um, the ice moons. It, it could they would they have developed yep. the same way, or is that a different it, kettle of fish? No, that was the thought, thought in my mind as well. And, you know, bearing in mind that the ice moons actually contain a lot more water than the Earth yeah. does. Uh, I think Europa, is it, has twice as much water as all in all the oceans of the Earth. It's um, So, uh, the, yes, maybe this mechanism works for them mm -hmm. as well. Uh, whether you can extend it to that, I don't know. Uh, but I'm sure these authors have thought of that, and maybe that will be the next paper that they... Yeah, publish. lots more to learn. Got another theory for you, Fred. Oh, you know, the, the earth, it's a water theory. Um, I've been trying to find a good place to use this piece of information that I came across, and uh, this seems like the perfect opportunity, seeing we're talking about water. So the Earth's um, 70%, 71% covered in water, correct? Indeed. Uh, it's uncarbonated, correct? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, that proves that Rapid. proves the Earth is flat. Uh, because it's uncarbonated, <laughs> it's uncarbonated. Da da. Oh gosh! So that's one of yours. No, it's, it? I read it somewhere. I've stolen that one. I do like it. Yeah. I do like it. So flat, the flat Earthers are right. The Earth is flat because the water's without carbonated. Mm. Yeah. All right, that's enough dad jokes. <laughs> I think that was a granddad it probably joke, was. Oh, well, I, actually, that gives me another. That dovetails beautifully. Oh, yes. It does, doesn't it? Grandchild number four arrived on Sunday. 
Mm, Felicity means... Ellen is her name, so we oh, welcome her lovely. to the world. That's lovely. What a lovely yeah, I'm name. I'm not going to tell her the truth about the world as yet because she's too young to understand, but hopefully it'll be better when she comes uh, comes of age because it's uh, it's not very happy at the moment. Well, the best thing you need to tell her is that she's a dumpling. Yes, she is. Yes. That, you know, that's, I think I mentioned once before that when our first um, granddaughter was born, she was the first dunkley girl in 50 years. Well, now there are three. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's astonishing! Well, poor you've, Nathaniel. <laughs> you've done, you've you've done the yeah, poor Nathaniel. You've done the Dunkley's proud, mm, if I may say. Mm. All right, moving on. Uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, I've mentioned social media many times because we are on uh, all sorts of media, social media platforms these days. We're on Facebook where we've got our official Facebook page. We also have the Space Nuts podcast group, which was created by the audience where you can talk to each other. Uh, we are now on Instagram. So look for spacenuts.io if you want to follow us on Instagram. Got a nice note the other day from someone said, you're finally here. I can follow you. Yay. Uh, and we're on YouTube where you can catch uh, video editions of Space Nuts. So uh, all you have to do is go to spacenuts.com slash C slash Space Nuts. And there we are. And you can uh, subscribe to um, Space Nuts through YouTube as well. Now, Fred, uh, this is uh, some new data uh, that's looking at dwarf galaxies. Now, uh, there's um, lots of dwarf galaxies sort of surrounding our galaxy, uh, some of which we've already eaten, some we're leaving till later. Uh, some are referred to as satellite galaxies because they are actually in orbit around us, but some are not, and they just sort of go, see ya, as they pass by. Now, um, th this has all come out of some, some new data, uh, which was revealed by Gaia. So what are they actually um, trying to tell us they've discovered? Uh, I think a really quite um, significant discovery about our galaxy. So just um, reminding us what Gaia is, it's a spacecraft uh, which is measuring the positions of stars with incredible accuracy. And by position, I don't mean three-dimensional position in space. I mean, it's, it's direction in the sky. Uh, that is the science usually known as astrometry, uh, measurement of the position of things uh, regarding the sky as though it was just a, the inside of a mm. sphere. Um, but that's very important because if you can do it with the sort of accuracy that Gaia is doing, then you can spot the motion of objects. You, you know, um, stars move relatively slowly. And certainly when I was a young astronomer, there was only about one star that really moved perceptibly in, within 10 years. And now Gaia can measure their position so accurate, uh, accurately uh, that you can you can look at them over a baseline of just three or four years uh, or even less and still get very accurate measurements of the velocity of stars across the line of sight. Uh, and so what's happened is that not only has Gaia been looking at the stars in our own galaxy, it's also been looking at dwarf galaxies, of which there are many. I've forgotten the number. Um, I think I mentioned it in uh, in Space Warp, but I can't remember what it is. It's it's it, you know tens of dwarf galaxies, might be sixty or something mm. like that, um, in orbit around. Uh, sorry, not in orbit, but around our own galaxy. And the normal view is that all of these objects 
were formed round about the same time as our galaxy as as offshoots. And in, indeed, it's true. When you look at simulations of galaxy formation, and some of the modern simulations are extraordinarily accurate, what you get is you can generate a, a spinning disk of stars and gas and dust like the real thing, but you also get all these satellite galaxies being formed, um, often many hundreds, in fact, uh, in the simulations. Uh, but uh, so what has always or has generally been assumed, and, and I have to say, Andrew, it's, it's only in my lifetime as a working astronomer that most of these have been discovered. I think Sagittarius Dwarf was one of the first discovered, and it was discovered at the telescope I worked at for, for many mm. years. Um, so um, they're rel a relatively new features as we've got bigger and better telescopes and been able to see these faint aggregations of stars which represent dwarf galaxies. So, um, um, as I said, there are many of them known, and the assumption has always been that they're all, all gravitationally bound to our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which means that they are in orbit around mm. it. Um, now, the Gaia data has revealed that for many of these dwarf galaxies, that's not correct because they're going too fast. Ah. Um, a little bit like, uh, you remember your old friend Oumuamua, yes. uh, as it careered through the inner solar system, how did we know it was an extra, uh, sorry, an extra solar or an interstellar asteroid? How did we know that? Because it, of its speed, it was whizzing through the solar system too fast to be grabbed by the sun, it had come from somewhere else. Um, and this, a similar thing has been discovered in respect to these dwarf galaxies. Uh, it's basically work led uh, from l'Observatoire de Paris uh, and uh, other uh, Parisian institutions uh, with, I think, a largely European list of authors, which you can't find at the moment, but never mind. It's, um, it, it's a remarkable discovery, and it, it's fairly close to home. Some of the work I've been involved with over the years, uh, including uh, projects uh, which I'm still peripherally involved with, although I've done much for quite a while, called Galar, which is galactic archaeology with, uh, with Hermes. Hermes is an instrument. Um, those, uh, those projects are looking at, in detail at the chemical and uh, dynamical, in other words, the way it moves, dynamical structure of our galaxy. And so this work on the dwarf galaxies is very much part and parcel of what that's all about. So what it, it looks like uh, is that we are seeing um, a situation where you've got the Milky Way, a massive uh, spiral galaxy, which does have uh, objects in orbit around it, which, generally speaking, are being torn to pieces because of the tidal effect of this giant um, this giant galaxy right next door. It just tends to, a bit like the tides are raised on the Earth by the moon, um, tides are raised in galaxies by, uh, dwarf galaxies by a large mass like the Milky Way. It pulls one end harder than the other. Mm. And so you get essentially this, um, uh, you know, you, you get this horrible uh, uh, tidal distortion, it's called. Uh, so the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy I just mentioned, that's being pulled to bits in this way. Um, but some of these are not having that effect because their velocity is too high um, for them to be in orbit. They might, you know, the Milky Way's gravity will be grabbing them as they go past. But the bottom line is that uh, unlike the traditional view, uh, these objects have not been in orbit for many billions of years um, and are circling the Milky Way for the first time. Ah. Um, 
it's really quite astonishing, in fact, uh, that this is a you know it's such a it's such a a, cha- a change in mindset, uh, to put it that way, um, that it's really quite a remarkable discovery. Yeah. So um, if they're moving too fast for us to actually catch them, and and some of the ones we have caught are, have already been absorbed into our galaxy and and you know are being redistributed. I think was the word I read. Yes. Uh, what will happen to these ones if they're if they're passers by? They'll just sort of meander off into another part of the universe. Um, yes, actually, more especially, they'll be they'll still be part of what we call the local group of galaxies, which is about I don't know a couple of dozen galaxies, three big ones ourselves, the Milky Way, M thirty one, the Andromeda Galaxy, and uh, uh, and the other one in Triangulum, whose number I've forgotten at the moment. It will come to me. Never mind. There are th- there are there are these um, three three big spiral galaxies. And so that they're the nucleus of the local group. And it's likely that these dwarf galaxies certainly belong to the local group, but not necessarily bound to our own galaxy. Okay. So uh, could they get sort of snaffled by one of the other two? Yeah, maybe yeah. so. Yeah, you know, if they, if they go in the right direction for a few billion years, maybe they yeah. M M thirty three is the other galaxy. I was thinking. There you go. Uh, of course, that's going to prompt questions because we all, we know that in the distant future that Andromeda and the Milky Way will combine. Cool. So if there are these other dwarf galaxies sort of speeding past us, saying, "Ha ha, you can't catch me," but Andromeda does catch it, does that mean we end up getting them anyway? Maybe so. That's right. So the the combined galaxy from the collision of the Milky Way and Andromeda is usually called Milcomeda, uh, and um, uh, and it it's it will be a. Um, I mean, we're talking now, not trillions, but many billions of years into the future. Mm. Uh, it, it will be a, essentially an elliptical galaxy because the, the gas content of the two um, spiral galaxies will have been used up in star formation, um, and. It seems likely that these dwarf galaxies, yeah, they will they will be collateral in the collision. They'll probably, uh, you know, catch a knock from this gravitational uh, disruption of of the Milky Way and Andromeda, and wind up as probably well behaved stars in the uh, but ancient stars in the Milcomeda galaxy. Milcomeda, I like that. <laughs> I've heard that before, but th- and that'll all happen in super slow motion, won't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, so slow that if you're on a planet or in orbit around one of the stars of one of these galaxies, you probably won't notice no, it. No. You have to live <laughs> to a very ripe old age to witness it, I think. Yeah, a couple of billion <laughs> yes, years. Do it. All right, interesting stuff. This is the Space Nuts podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley and he's Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, I've uh, mentioned uh, our patrons a few times, and uh, it's really great to be able to welcome new patrons on board. We've had quite a few sign up in recent times, so we appreciate that, putting a a few dollars in the can uh, for us every month uh, to help fund uh, Space Nuts. We appreciate it. If you would like to become a patron, all the details are on our website, spacenuts.io or spacenutspodcast.com. Just go on the support link and find out what you can do there if you'd like to become a patron. And I've noticed on social media, Fred, that a lot of the patrons are starting to get their presents 
turn up in the mail. Oh, uh, we're not telling them that they're oh, receiving presents. They're just turning up and they're showing everybody on uh, the Space Nuts podcast group Facebook page what they're receiving and there'll be more to come. So if you sign up as a patron, there are extra benefits as well as a fully commercial-free version of the podcast uh, and much more. So, uh, yeah, have a look into it. If it's not for you, that's fine. There is a 30-day trial, so you can give it a go and if uh, if it's not for you, that's that's fine, uh, but if you'd like to continue on, that's that's terrific. Now, Fred, we've got uh, a question here from uh, Fenton, who uh, has come up with one we haven't had to answer before, so uh, this will be refreshing. Hi, guys. This is Fenton calling you from St. Paul, uh, Minnesota in the U.S., and I have some questions on Jupiter, in particular the radiation that's emitted from it. What's known about that? I understand that it's not a settled question. And then also, uh, radiation, does that come from Saturn, Uranus, and um, Neptune? How much radiation do they give off as well? And in all four cases, how is that going to interfere with the possibility of life uh, on all four planets? Is it going to fry it? How far out will it fry it? Etc. Thanks a lot. Enjoy your show. It's better than the gloomy news that you will hear um, every day, probably in Australia too. Bye now. Thank you, Fenton. Yes, uh, there is way too much gloomy news in the world at the moment. I don't disagree with you there. Uh, radiation from the gas giants. He cited Jupiter, but I suppose it can apply to um, uh, all of them. Um, yeah, where do you want to start on that one? Well, Jupiter is um, sorry, Andrew. Jupiter is the, uh, the, the you know the most ra- <laughs> the most radiation strong uh, planet uh, in the solar system, uh, and I think the other gas giants are a fairly pale shadow of Jupiter okay. in that regard. Of course, it is the biggest of the planets. It's got the strongest magnetic field of any of the planets, um, and that extends out into it dominates so the, the the jupiter's magnetic field dominates in a in a region which we call the magnetosphere um, the earth has one uh, jupiter has one too but jupiter's magnetosphere uh, is um, basically a million times bigger than the earth's in in volume um, it's very big indeed uh, so you've got this large region around a large planet which is dominated by strong magnetic fields. And what that means is that uh, any subatomic particles that wander into that region, and of course the sun's spurting these out all the time, uh, any subatomic particles get accelerated by this magnetic field and they become radiation because they are high energy particles. Um, Actually, there's a little bit, there's another slightly quirky aspect of Jupiter's radiation field. And that is that uh, not all the subatomic particles come from the sun. Um, In fact, most of them come from another source not very far away, which is Jupiter's moon Io or Io, depending on which way you want to produce it. Um, And the statistics say that every second a ton of sulfur dioxide gas is squirted into space um, 
by you know the volcanic activity of uh, of EO, uh, and the basically as soon as that gas gets into space, it, it turns into sulfur and oxygen, um, and that is actually uh, that coupled with you know those those ions. Uh, which means they've got no electrons. Those ions actually um, form the radiation material, if you can put it that way, uh, being accelerated by the magnetic field. Mm. Uh, and and actually, um, there's a really neat effect which has been observed by many spacecraft. Uh, the recurrence between EO and Jupiter's upper atmosphere, the ionosphere, uh, which amount to a million amps, uh, you know, high current on Earth is what ten amps. Yeah. If you've got, you know, a heavy piece of kit, a heater, or something like that, these are million amp currents. Of course, they're flowing through what amounts to empty space. But uh, it's those currents, and they're they're driven by the particles that have been ejected from EO itself. They uh, actually turn into aurorae on the planet itself. It's how we see the aurorae of Jupiter because of this stream of stuff coming from EO. Yeah. So it really is, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the question is absolutely on the money that what does the what is the effect of this amazing uh, magnetic field uh, around this giant planet? And it's pretty, pretty devastating um, because the... You know the the radiation belt re really acts exactly as the word suggests. It's a belt of these high fluxes of particles, uh, probably at the shape of a donut um, around Jupiter's equator. Mm. Um, it makes me think of um, images. I, I used to when I was doing talks about why we have different sorts of telescopes uh, in the in, in the astronomer's arsenal. I used to show three pictures of Jupiter. One was the normal one we see with visible light, where you've got the cloud belts and the great red spot all visible in reflected light from the sun. Yep. But then if you go to the infrared region of the spectrum, you see uh, Jupiter's cloud belts, but they are what they're doing is uh, the cloud belts are dark and the space between them is bright, and that's because you're seeing the heat of the planet leaking mm. out uh, between the cloud belts, you, you, the infrared radiation. But then when you go to the radio spectrum and look at what Jupiter appears in a radio telescope, it's basically got these, it's a, it's a disk, a rather ill-defined disk, but with these two brilliant, um, what you might, almost looking like ears to one side and the other, which are this... Uh, donut shaped you know you're seeing edge on this donut shaped radiation belt because the radiation belts are extremely um, you know prominent in the radio region of the spectrum so we know all that that's uh, that's telling us that yes these radiation belts are very strong uh, what will be the effect on life uh, well we you don't even need to look at life to see its effects because um, if you put a, a spacecraft in orbit around Jupiter, too close in, uh, all its electronics get fried yeah. uh, because of the intensity of the radiation. And that's why the Juno spacecraft is in a very elongated orbit. So it spends most of its time outside the radiation belts and just uh, plunges inside them for a brief period on, on each of its orbits. Mm. Um, I think the answer to the, you know, the, the, the main question there, what would it do to life? I think it's pretty grim in its... Uh, in its effect on life, I think that we are 
we're likely to be looking at an environment that would really be so damaging uh, to any kind of, you know, subatomic, sorry, uh, microscopic organisms, let alone higher higher orders of life, uh, that you you really will be in trouble. Um, Having said that, Europa, which is outside the radiation belts, but not too far away, is still considered to be one of the uh, top candidates for the possibility of finding life within the solar system, the oceans of Europa underneath the ice, mm. you know, the ice caps, which themselves would give, oh, sorry, the ice crust of Europa, which would give a little bit of protection from the uh, from the radiation field, but not that much. As um, Jupiter orbits the sun and you know, interacts with EO as it does, um, mm. did, I mean, we think about the radiation being around and emitting from the planet, does it leave a trail of radiation as it goes or does that dissipate or what happens to it? I think it's, uh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, and I, I'm not enough of a particle physicist to know what the answer is, mm. but I think um, what's happening, I mean, subatomic particles must leak from, uh, you know, from the mag uh, Jupiter's magnetosphere. Uh, and my guess is that they are going at such high velocities that they will just, um, you know, they won't be particularly take much notice of Jupiter's uh, orbit. They'll just spurt out into space, I think. Um, my guess is they will become effectively part of the solar wind, uh -huh. um, blowing perhaps stronger in one direction than the other. But it's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that, hmm. Andrew. That I stumped Fred. <laughs> you need a badge. There <laughs> should be a badge, yeah. Fenton, thanks for your question. Hopefully we uh, gave you an adequate answer, which is what we strive to do here on Space Nuts. Yeah. Now we're going Never a good one, to, just sorry? adequate. Never a good one, just adequate. Yeah, that's right. Now we're heading over to the UK, uh, Maidstone, Kent, where Gareth resides. He says, I'm puzzled about the formation of stellar mass black holes. Yes, yet another black hole question. It's okay, Gareth. It's all right. Don't lose any sleep over it. Assuming gravity is proportional to mass and light can escape from any star, otherwise we wouldn't see them, then no star that we can see has the mass to trap light as a black hole does. If most stars lose mass rather than gain it at the end of their life, how can any visible star ever become a black hole without accreting significant mass at some point? What am I missing? Thanks for the great and informative podcast. Ooh, that's a good question. Yes, it is a good one. Um, and... I guess you know what we should do is look at how a, a stellar mass black hole is formed from the collapse of a star. We think some of them are formed that way. If you've got a star whose mass is about 20 times the mass of the sun, it's shining away. It, the, most of the radiation that we see comes from its outer envelope, uh, which is, um, you know, the, the, it's the part where the nuclear processes are not taking place. Uh, they're taking place in the core, which is the very centre of of the star uh, but that heats the envelope around it what you might call the atmosphere of the star mm. and that's where that's the source of the the radiation that we see the light from that we see now what stops the star collapsing at that point is the outward pressure of that radiation it's what's stopping the the core collapsing so um a 20 time a 20 solar mass star uh, will we think eventually explode as a supernova uh, and the 
uh, outer envelope is blasted off to make something which we've known and studied well, uh, clouds of gas known as supernova remnants. There are many of them uh, around our galaxy. Um, famous ones include the Veil Nebula. Uh, there is, um, what's it called? There's a very prominent one here in the south. Uh, it, and I can't remember what constellation it's in, but you know, it, it, it's a remnant of a, of a supernova. Uh, now the core itself, though, when the when the basically the um, the, the the hydrogen burning stops, uh, so you don't have the outward radiation pressure, that core collapses. And if the if the core is more than about two, I think two point two times the mass of the sun, it will collapse to a black hole. Less than that, and it'll collapse to a neutron star. Uh -huh. But uh, less, less, more than that, it'll collapse to a black hole. Nothing will stop the collapse, and it turns into a singularity. And the key thing about the singularity is that uh, yes, it's it's uh, got say two times the mass of the sun, but it's not a two solar mass star. Um, so uh, you know the, the the bit of it that released the light out is long gone, um, and uh, what you've what you're really seeing. Uh, and th this is another difference between a two solar mass star and a two solar mass black hole. The black hole has got this incredible gravity well. Uh, it's you know if you plot gra if you imagine gravity as a uh, as a surface, it disappears down a plug hole basically. It's an incredibly steep gravity yep. well, and it's that that stops the light escape. Uh -huh. Whereas light can escape from a two solar mass star with no problem, but uh, from a two solar mass black hole it can't. Okay. So, just to clarify it in my mind, um, he, he, it's a much, much bigger star that becomes a two solar mass black hole. Yeah. So, yeah, because the outer the outer layers disappear off in the explosion, and the core itself is the bit that becomes the black okay. hole. Okay. All right. Makes sense. So it is. It is. Um, big enough to become a black hole it's just it doesn't become the same size black hole as it was yes that, that's yes that's right so the the star the, the black the black hole is less than the mass of the star because half the star has been blown yep. away but the key thing is and the key reason i think the the heart of this question is about the gravity gradient uh the black hole is a single point and that's what stops the, the light getting out, the event horizon. Okay. Whereas a star's not like that. A star's much more like the Earth. All right. It shines in the dark. There you go. Something to ponder, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> if you were confused then, what are you thinking now? Yeah, you don't sound convinced, Andrew. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure I am either. But never mind. Well, no, I suppose it's just it, it's sort of the, the, the questions we get most often are about black holes or dark matter. Uh, dark matter is fast catching up as the most popular genre when it comes to questions, but black holes still mystify people and, and getting your head around something as, as unusual as that uh, always prompts questions. So um, that, that was a good one to ask because, um, yeah, we, we, we know black what, holes don't allow question. light out. So how can a star become a black yeah. hole if they, can't, if they ha yeah. don't have the power to stop their light from escaping? It happens later. Yeah. He does. Mm. All right. Uh, thank you, Gareth. Thank you, Fenton. Thank you, everybody, for uh, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the program. And uh, that wraps up yet another episode, Fred. It's been good fun. 
It has been good fun, and we look forward to another one before very long. Yeah, hopefully they won't ban dad jokes because then I'd have nothing to talk about. <laughs> no, you keep up the good work, Grandad. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, thanks, Fred. We'll, we'll catch you next week. See you later. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts and uh, Hugh in the studio. As always, thank you for your support and help because uh, he he does work very hard. He certainly did quite a bit of work on the program for us last week when we ran into some technical snafus that we didn't know had happened until it was too late. It was like a black hole. It just um, all happened after the event. Uh, and uh, from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for your company. Uh, oh, don't forget, if you uh, do want to send us some questions, go to our website and click on the um, uh, AMA tab or the uh, button on the right-hand side to send us your audio questions. We take te- text questions as well. Always great to hear from you. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, until next time, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again real soon on another episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.